0: If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up to the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler. Um, if you're new here, there should be a Bible in the, in the front of the pew that you're sitting in. And uh, go ahead and grab that. Welcome, by the way, if you're new. So grab a hold of that Bible. We're going to start reading in verse 17. And I'm going to read down to verse 27. The rich young ruler. And as he was setting out on a journey a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and saying to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we come to your word. I pray earnestly that I might be quiet and that your word would go forth. What it is here in your eternal inspired word that you would have your people here, people from all different walks of life, people in all different, all different conditions, mentally, physically, financially, and all the rest. Lord, your word is not short. Your word abounds for the many. It is applicable to all people. Lord, your gospel is for everyone. And so by the power of your spirit in a way that is beyond me, I am helpless, I am helpless to do what you do. So Lord, please use this time, use your words to meet people where they're at in a way that is absolutely beyond me and above my pay grade. Lord, we need you, we need you. So be here, be amongst us. Thank you, Jesus, for your cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for your life. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So I was doing some research, kind of just for fun, and uh, I came to learn some things that were pretty neat. Did you know that the Milky Way galaxy, I mean, the Milky Way galaxy is big, we know that. The galaxy is, is large. Galaxies tend to be pretty good in size. The Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, this is ridiculous. I learned is 621 quadrillion 371 trillion, 192 billion, 237 million, miles across. That doesn't even make sense. I, I, I'm, I'm halfway suspecting that scientists just make stuff. Like their yardstick only goes so far, and after that they're like, ah, 621 quadrillion. That sounds about right, yeah. But this is what they say, according to Live Science, 621 quadrillion miles across. They said that if you were going to travel the distance of the Milky Way, it would take you 200,000 years to do so. If you were traveling at the speed of light, which is a humble and modest 186,000 miles per second. Not me. I don't even like getting on planes. It's not going to happen. Everything is so big. 621 quadrillion miles, you know, 200,000 years. The speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. It is quite a crazy universe that we live in. And even the big things, I mean, 621 quadrillion, according to live science, scientists are saying that that's actually a pretty small galaxy as far as galaxies go. And our sun, a modest 2.7 million miles around it, could fit 1.3 million Earths inside of it, and it's still known in science as being a pretty small star. And everything's fast, everything's big. We're spinning around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. We're on a tilt at 23.5. We're spinning on our axis at 1,000 miles an hour. This is why some of us have vertigo and claustrophobia. This is just sickening when you start thinking about the numbers of everything, how wild everything is. And as I was reading these numbers, I couldn't help but think the God that we worship, you know, 621 quadrillion miles, and he created this. He spoke it into existence. These numbers don't compute in our mind. I don't think it's it's possible. I don't even know what a quadrillion is. I can't even spell the word. But this is how big, I mean, it's, it's a little one. That's a little galaxy, and our Lord created that. By speaking it into existence, it's incredible. He holds that in the palm of his hand, 621 quadrillion, just right on the tip of his pinky. He holds it all together. He keeps that sun ignited. He keeps us in our gravitational pull. He keeps the earth tilted on its axis, which gives us four seasons. Brilliant design. Beyond human computation. I, as I was reading this, I just it reaffirmed in my, in my mind, I don't have the faith to be an atheist. There's no way. All that just happened and it's working. And this time, this time of year, and I was supposed to preach this sermon last, year, last week so I know that I'm a, week, I'm a week behind, but this time of year, Christmas season, we, we celebrate the incarnation. And that is that we, we celebrate the reality that this God who holds 621 quadrillion on the tip of his pinky and keeps everything in orbit, everything working, gravity, precipitation, the tides, of the ocean. He keeps everything perfectly functioning. He came to earth. He took on the form of a servant. He was born as a human being, a little baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's an incredible truth. And this is our Jesus, God in the flesh, God come into human existence. The very same God who's upholding the universe by the word of his power entered into human suffering and became an infant child. Vulnerable, visible, physical. It's a beautiful reality. And in Jesus we see what this God is like. This God who has the the power and the authority to govern the entire universe. Jesus shows us what he's like. And in in, in real life, in real physical life, Jesus showed us who this God is. Not just what he can do, not just what he's capable of, but his heart, his character, what he's like. Everything that Jesus said, that's what God's saying. Everything that Jesus did, that's what God's doing because Jesus is God in the flesh. In the, in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, we see an idea that Moses is talking to Yahweh and he asks him in, in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says, He says, I pray you, show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on a rock. And it will come about that my glory will pass by you. And I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Chapter 34, I'm going to skip down a little bit just for the sake of time. Chapter 34, verse 6. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God said, you cannot see my face. I'm gonna put you in this rock, I'm gonna pass by you. But Yahweh spoke over Moses. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, loving kindness, depending on your translation, God is, Yahweh is describing with words to Moses who he is. But in Jesus, we were able to see his face. He became physical. He became approachable. John chapter 1 starts off saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is the person, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who was never created, never had a beginning has existed for all of eternity past. The word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Moses said, let me see your glory. And John says years later that we saw his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Old Testament, Exodus's steadfast love and faithfulness or loving kindness is the New Testament equivalent of grace and truth. John is saying, this is him. We have seen his glory, and that glory is full of grace and truth. And we saw it physically in the person of Jesus. And all of this is to say is that the the God who holds 621 quadrillion on his pinky tip, he is good. He's good. He's compassionate. He's kind. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we saw it face to face. The same same gospel writer John wrote an epistle, and he says in that epistle, that which we have heard, that we have seen, that we have touched with our hands. God became physical and vulnerable, and in Jesus, we see God's compassion. We see his compassion lived out. We see his compassion in action. Mark chapter one, it says that Jesus had compassion on the leper, and he healed him. Chapter 6, he had compassion on the 5,000 and he miraculously fed them. Chapter 8, he had compassion on the 4,000 and he miraculously fed them. He is a God who's holding the Milky Way in its place and has enough care and concern and attention to detail to know that you're hungry. To know that you're thirsty. He fed people. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses. Luke twelve thirty two. Jesus says to his disciples, fear not, little flock. You know, of all the things that Jesus forbids, the number one that he forbids in scripture is fear. I should double check that. I read that, but it just felt, it just felt good. But he, he always says, fear not, be not afraid. Fear not, be not afraid. He says in Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This God who holds all of this vastness in place, it's his pleasure to invite you into his home. It's his pleasure to love you. It's his pleasure to have you. Luke chapter 13, Jesus is, is warned by some people that Herod wants him dead. And Jesus laments over Jerusalem because Jerusalem at large is rejecting him. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you did not want it. He wants us. He's grieved whenever we turn away. He's grieved when we reject. He's grieved when we don't want him because it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the God of the universe. This is his kindness. This is his compassion. This is his slowness to anger. Matthew 11, Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. In Luke 23, as he's being put on the cross, the very men that are killing him, Jesus cries out in pain and in agony, probably not thinking about what he said before he said it, and he cries out and he says, Father God, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even in the midst of being murdered, he was praying for those who were killing him. This is a level of compassion that we, we can't touch. We're, this is so far beyond us, but this is how good our God is. And I think that it would behoove us to think about that. Think about how vast the cosmos is, and that's how vast his grace is, how vast his, his, his love is for you. He loves you. God loves you. We need to remember that. We need to tell ourselves that every day. I just show up at church in a tie once a year for Christmas and act like we know it. God loves us. And as I, as I'm getting older, I've started to be I've started I've started to be troubled by by something. And it was it was something that I, I saw as a kid, but I didn't really think about. Uh, I remember I grew up in church, and I remember there was always a really big emphasis on uh, missions. Got to get on mission. Got to go on mission trips. We got to go out into the field, the mission field. We got to go to, we got to move from this little, this little nucleus of Christians in northeast Portland and we got to send people out to all different parts of the country and all different parts of the world. And yes and amen. Yes. Preach the gospel everywhere. Every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Absolutely. And as I've gotten older... And realize that all those kids who went on mission, all those kids that I was with, who went to Alturas, California, and went to, the, went to YWAM, all over the planet, I don't know if I can think of a single one today who's not an atheist. Just like an outright, like, I'm spitting on my Bible, I'm done with Jesus, I'm over this. And this is a complex and weird thing, because... Nobody can just point the finger and judge, but it concerns me, and what I've, what I've come to be convicted of is that, yes, send missionaries out to other places, yeah, yes. But see, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, and everybody was sitting around a table with him and Jesus, you know who was at that table? Judas. I'm worried about the Judases. I think that one of the easiest groups of people to neglect in evangelism are people sitting in the pews. And I say that because I come from a long generation of kids who have all rejected the faith, they have put their middle finger up to the church, to Jesus, to really kind of any religion at all, but they were sitting in the pews for decades. Maybe some of them are saved and they're just going through a rebellion period. I don't know, but I'm concerned about it. Because I was one of those kids sitting in the pews and thinking, well, God's compassionate. God is good. God is kind. He's slow to anger. So, hey, you know, I'm tight. It's all right. I haven't done anything bad. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Doing 25 other things, but nothing that's really all that serious. And this is really how I thought. I didn't check my watch before I got up here, so... We'll see what happens. When I was, a, I remember when I was a kid, I used to think this way. I used to think, well, God's, God's cool so long as you just don't overdo it. And my, my sin, I was drinking and smoking and lying and stealing and vandalizing and doing all this stuff. But for some reason, in my, in my 12-year-old brain, I was like, I just, but I can't, ha- I can't have sex outside of marriage. That's the one where God's gonna like really bring the hammer down. So as long as I don't do that, as long as I don't actually murder anyone, then I'm probably all right. I'll just, I'll just bank on his kindness to get me the rest of the way. The word repent was not a word that I, I'm not sure if I even heard that word. I didn't know what that meant. And I thought, well, as long as I just keep myself abstinent then I'm gonna be okay. And I, and I was with a group of other kids who thought the same thing, and now all of them have rejected the faith. I want to evangelize to the people in the pews because I am a kid who was not taught the gospel for a long time, but I was sitting in the pews. And this, this rich young ruler in our text today I, is one of these people. This guy's, this guy's pretty legit. His, his story is in all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know from Matthew 19 he was young. We know from Luke 18 that he was a ruler, and all three say that he was rich. Matthew even says he was extremely rich. So he's a young, dignified guy with influence, with power, with authority. Most scholars believe that he was, he's a ruler. That meant that he, ruled, he was ruling over some local synagogue, so he's a man of standing. He's a dignified dude. He's a, he's a guy that people look up to. And he comes to Jesus. It says that he's running to Jesus. He ran up to him, knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think one of the most astounding things about this dude is that he's so well put together that he actually knows that he's missing something. He's humble enough to admit, I need help. A dignified man comes running. This is not something that you saw in the ancient world. The rulers of synagogues were not wearing Reeboks and going for a jog. This guy was not supposed to be running. It it sort of looked foolish to run. And he's probably wearing nice clothes. He's probably got jewelry on. And he comes to this vagabond rabbi and he kneels down in the dirt and says, what am I missing? You read this slow enough, you start to get the impression like, man, Peter's going to get fired. And this guy's going to get his place. This is legit. He seems, I mean, he's, he's morally upright, he's rich, he's got standing, he's got influence. Think about what the kingdom could do with a guy like this. He's even willing to admit that he's got some weak spots, and he's, he's looking to get that filled in, even by some, some ragamuffin rabbi in sandals and, and common folk clothing. He's kneeling down. This is an incredible intimate, I mean, this is sincere. This guy's not just being coy or funny. He's being sincere. He comes to the right person with the right question. He comes to Jesus and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And with this whole scene, the guy running, he's a ruler, he's rich, he kneels down, this whole thing that happens, good teacher, what must I do? Jesus captures onto one key little word in this whole, this whole, this whole situation, the word good. And he challenges this word good, this concept of good. He challenges the man's concept of good. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And some have said that Jesus is here admitting that he's not God in the flesh and that he's not good. That's blasphemy. I don't want to hear it. What Jesus is doing here is he's 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 playing on the other guy's terms. He doesn't know, the rich young guy doesn't know he's talking to God in the flesh. He thinks he's just talking to a regular everyday rabbi and he calls him good and Jesus tunes that up what Jesus says is nobody's good. Men and women, human beings, not good. God, God alone is good. He's challenging the man's concept of good. What do you think good is? And this is, this is the rub for us. Luke nineteen ten. Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And we like that. That sounds nice. He came to seek and save. He's a compassionate king who goes looking for those that are lost, but I'm not lost. I'm good as long as I just don't kill anybody as long as I don't steal too much money as long as my white lies don't turn into red lies I guess I guess I'm good because I'm just going to rely on God's passion but repent to admit that we actually need rescue that we cannot do anything to save ourselves our culture is is repulsed by that and even a lot of people sitting in the pews don't like the idea of it either we're not good that's what Jesus is saying. Only God is good. The standard of good is not me compared to, you all, you always, there's always the most extreme examples. Well, Hitler was bad, but I'm not bad. Mao was bad. Well, I'm not bad. Ted Bundy was bad, but I'm not bad. Compared to what? Compared to Ted Bundy? Oh, sure, but is that really your basis? That's gonna be your guy? The book of Psalms, chapter 14 First few verses, we read these words The wicked fool says in his heart, There is no God. They act corruptly. They commit abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has any insight, anyone who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. These are harsh words, and it's hard to hear. But we have to start there. We have to start by understanding that this guy's coming to Jesus with the right question. He's coming to the right person with that question, but he's got the wrong idea. He thinks that he can add something, some some rung to the ladder of a religion of prohibition or a religion of, of deeds. What can I do or what should I abstain from to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus just turns him upside down and says, you're not the concept of good has to be readdressed. Compared to God's law, compared to Yahweh's perfect holiness, Yahweh's perfect righteousness, we are all, all horribly fallen. I've heard Josh say it before that whenever you, you compare us to Hitler, we're not that far off. We're made of all the same things he is. Greed. I'm gonna keep that Bible. I'm gonna, I'm gonna st- they don't even know I have it. That's, that's the seed of something horrible. That unchecked, imagine what you could do. I'm gonna do this dishonest thing because nobody knows about it but me. That's the seed of something that could be monumentally evil. The distance between us and the people we compare ourselves against is not that far. We need to look at God's law. And when it comes to God's law, Romans 3.23 says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, verse 19, you know the commands. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the young man says, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth up. To be, to be blunt, to put it simply, Jesus gives them all the easy ones. He takes the, te- the tablet of the commandments, the second tablet of the commandments that have everything to do with how we relate to one another. Not the heart issue, not what we're doing with idolatry, not who is our God, what do we worship, but just the surface level stuff. Murder is pretty easy to see. Adultery is pretty easy to see. that surface level behavior stuff. But we know that God's law goes deeper than that. It goes beyond behavior modification and it goes straight into the heart. When asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus says in Matthew 22, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The commandment is to love God perfectly every waking moment of your entire life. How are we doing on that? And that every single thing that you do for the good of people should be done with this honoring God perfectly, loving God perfectly in your heart. And that the manifestation of that is worshiping in spirit and truth and doing good for your neighbor perfectly all the time, every day. And the problem is that even our good deeds are often full of evil. I'm going to give this much money and I'm going to do this sort of thing because I'll just know that I'm a good person. Or somebody will see it. Somebody will check out the offering box and see my name on that check and go, wow. That dude's dope. I'm taking that dude to lunch next week. Far out. It, God's law goes beneath the surface. This young guy had obviously not been present for the Sermon on the Mountain where Jesus says, you haven't murdered. All right, good, but you, have you nursed a grudge? Have you nursed a grudge? You haven't committed adultery? Okay, good, don't do it. If you haven't done that, don't start now. But have you you fostered a a lustful thought? Have you looked at someone with lustful intention? You've committed the same sin. And the writer of James tells us that, well, the epistle of James tells us that if you've follied in the law in one area, you're guilty of the whole thing because to be guilty is to be guilty. And this should be a little bit scary to us. We should look at God's law and be undone. We should be broken by this. We should look at this and, and actually think there's, there's absolutely no way. The world, the Portland culture looks at this and goes, that's a stupid law. I don't need to listen to it. I'm not going to listen to it. And that's foolish. The fool says in their heart there is no God. And if God is God, God's got law. We scream about righteousness in this in this city, we scream about justice in this city. But whenever it comes down to justice being executed on us, then all of a sudden we get real queasy. This should scare us. We should look at this and go, wow, that's, I'm a man of unclean lips. Amongst the people that, that, that have unclean lips and this should run us straight into the arms of Jesus. This should run us straight into the arms of Jesus. Because as, as bad as we are, and we are bad, Jesus says to his disciples, "If those of you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father is in heaven." In John seven seven, he said, "The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil." And we don't even like hearing the word in this culture. Evil is like the real extreme stuff—the Bundy, the Hitler—that's evil. But everything else, eh, it's all right. It's all right, especially if it's behind closed doors and it's consensual. It's no problem. It's evil. And Jesus calls it out, "But he loves this guy. He loves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in our our deepest sins, our sin, our, As deep as our sins are, He still loves us. The God who holds who holds the universe, the God who holds the Milky Way, he loves you. While you were still sinners, he died for you. This young guy is sincere. He thinks he's kept the law. He's obviously very clearly deceived, and Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him. He says that he looked at him and loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell and possess all you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. What you're looking for, young man, I will give to you. Now come and be a part of my crew. He loved this kid. He invited him to come walk with him. He invited him to be a part of his crew. He didn't berate him. He didn't chastise him. He didn't he didn't speak harshly to him. He loved him and he gently hurt him because it's what was required. This young man thought that his money was the thing that he could have in place of God. As long as I have this one thing, then I'm good. I don't really need God. I can just get, I can just get salvation on top, of, on top of my idol. And Jesus challenged that because it's a loving thing to do. And he loved him, invited him to become a part of his, his inner group of followers. Come and be a part of the group. Come with me. We might be broken, yes. We might be sinners, yes. And Jesus, that means that we're his type. And he says, come, follow me come be with me. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're a sinner, if you feel like you're broken, if you're struggling with the same thing, welcome to the club. Jesus looks at you and says, come, follow me, be with me. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He invites this guy into his group. Sell all you have, give it up, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Love your, neighbor with, love, your, love your neighbor as yourself. Just give, there's so many poor people in this town, man. Just give it all away. Come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And you know, the treasure in heaven, that's really something. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading with God and with each other for all of eternity. No more crying, no more pain, no more tears, endless joy, endless flourishing. This was the first Christmas without my dad. And there was a couple of people that came up, you know, they were worried. And I, and I was too, like I, I was supposed to be here Friday night for the evening service and I, I dipped real early because I was like, you know, it's the first Christmas without my dad. I'm gonna go there and be with the family. And the family was rejoicing. I was like, I could go back to work. They were kicking it because it was the first Christmas without dad, yes. But what we realize is that this is dad's first Christmas with Jesus. He's stoked. And that makes us stoked. And that makes us love Jesus. That makes us worship Jesus. Because when my dad was broke in a Volkswagen bus on the tail end of a drug addiction, he met Jesus and Jesus said, come and follow me. Yes, you, John, I love you. Be a part of my crew. And for all of eternity, you will have treasure in heaven. We will, have the, we will have the treasure. We will have the place where Jesus said, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be there also. We're gonna have that pad. Whatever that's like, whatever Yahweh comes up with, sick. I get excited about indoor plumbing. Imagine what's gonna be in heaven, right? I've been to countries where we, they don't have it. We should be thankful for what we have, but heaven is gonna be so much better. No more sin, no more crying, no more pain. And we're gonna be with the one who loves us. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son so whosoever whosoever would believe shall not perish but have everlasting life. That God that loves us, that God that holds the Milky Way in balance loves you with a greater love than even the expanse of the universe and he wants you to be in his home and that is his delight. Isaiah chapter 49, I think it's verse 15, says, will the woman who nurses her infant forget that infant? Even these may forget but I will not forget you. Whatever love relationship you have on earth, the best one that you got, it ain't diddly compared to how much God loves you. As much as I love my wife, it is not, I mean, he holds the Milky Way in his hand. I can't compete with that. As much as I love my mom, his love is greater than the the Milky Way. The bigness of the universe is in, somewhat, is, is in a way that just the, the magnitude of his care for you, the magnitude of how much he's paying attention to you. Because while the Milky Way's doing its thing, he still knows how many hairs are on your head. He knit you together in your mother's womb, the Bible says. He knows you. He loves you. A, m- a nursing mom may forget, but I will never forget you. Zephaniah 317, Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. The God who holds the Milky Way and everything else looks at you and he sings. He loves you with that kind of intensity, with that sort of vast expanse is his love for you. And even while we are still sinners, when we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. It's an incredible reality, and, and this guy comes to Jesus, and he wants to follow the rules, and he's sincere, but his real God, Jesus is like, okay, you've, you've, you've done pretty good with the second tablet, at least on the surface. Well, let's go to number one. Let's go to the very first commandment. You'll have no other God before me. Sell your stuff. Trust me, and let's, let's get out of Dodge, and the guy leaves Moses was put in the cleft, and God walked by him. Jesus comes, and we're looking at the Lord straight in the face. And this man stood before Jesus, and he turned around, and he left. And we don't know what happened. Maybe he repented later. I hope so. It's none of my business. It's not in the Bible. But he left. He went away sad, and he went away grieving. And the the language there is is strong language. He He was distraught. He was grieving hard. He left very sad. As much as he wanted this eternal life that he spoke of, he wanted his riches more. He wanted this world more. And Jesus said, how foolish is it? What what does it benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? The riches that this guy had? He gave it up. He walked away. And Jesus said, come and you'll have treasure in heaven. It's sad. I hope he came back eventually. And so Jesus said, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And his, di- his disciples were amazed at his words But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I read uh, in a few different commentaries, and I I did a little bit of digging into it, and I just don't believe that it's true. There was people that were saying that the eye of the needle is actually this little gate on the side of Jerusalem. And if you came in after hours, you could strip the baggage off of a camel. You could get it down on its knees. You could, I don't know, rub it down with like something slippery and you could boot it through the door. You know, you could get that thing in there, but you had to work for it. It was really hard. No. No. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying get down low and like boogie yourself, vaseline yourself up and crawl underneath the kingdom wall. That's not what he's saying. He said, he said it very clearly. He said it is impossible. And we need, to, we need to note that word. It is impossible. I think that Jesus was looking at a camel, the biggest mammal in the area, and he thought of the smallest little hole in the area and he's like, yeah, it's, you got better odds. You got better odds of getting that camel and to a a needle-nosed turtleneck. It's not going to happen. It is impossible. And it's kind of, it's almost funny. It's almost a funny comparison. But the intensity and the weight of it should not be lost. The camel through an eye of a needle, it is absolutely impossible to earn your way into heaven. You cannot work for it. You cannot achieve it. You cannot earn it. And that should kind of be relieving to us because Jesus did it for us. We don't have to. That weight is off of us. But the impossibility of, our, of salvation on our own accord or on our own merit is something that Jesus mentioned more than once. In Matthew 5 20, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will no way enter the kingdom. And the Pharisees were all sorts of messed up, but they looked good. They looked really, really good. They looked even better than this guy. Jesus says, What they represent, what they, what they, what they look like, what they're supposed to be, you've actually got to be better than that. And the people knew what he meant. In Matthew 5.40, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Leviticus 11.44, be holy for I am holy. This is impossible. Impossible for people. This is a God project. And apparently it's that much more difficult for somebody who has a lot of money. And we all know why. We all know why. If you and me, this is sort of a silly analogy, but it was the first one I thought of and it works and so I'm gonna roll with it. I could have probably thought a little bit harder on it. But if we were going up to Belmont together, we were riding up Belmont and we stopped to get a New York slice of pizza. And while we're there in the Portland rain doing our thing and our sneakers and our beanies waiting for a piece of pizza and I pulled out of my backpack a fully functional adult sized parachute and handed it to you, you would think that that was really weird. You would probably take it because you're nice people but you would think, I don't need this parachute, but whatever, man. My feet are on the ground, but cool, you know. Maybe one day I'll need it. But if we were falling in an airplane careening towards Earth, and I handed you a parachute, you would grab a hold of it, you would strap it on, and you would believe in that parachute. Because in that moment, the obvious reality that we are careening towards death faster than we'd like to admit is very, very much in the forefront of our mind. We are heading towards death every single moment. From the, mo- I used to have a friend who used to say, he was just sort of this like nihilist who was trying to be funny about it. And He's like, well, we started dying the minute we were born. But it's true. We're heading towards death at every moment. And when you're in a plane that's crashing, you realize that you grab a hold of a parachute because you will put your trust in that parachute. What are we putting our trust in whenever we're chilling on Belmont? And the reality of death is just nowhere in front of us. We don't feel it, we don't see it. Wealth has a very unique way of silencing the voice raging inside of you that is your mortality. We can buy the right kinds of food, we can go to the right kinds of gyms. People even do Botox and liposuction and all sorts of things. Age-defying makeup, I've seen that commercial. That's designed to like hide the fact that your age is increasing. We're heading towards death every day. And this young man's wealth, wealth is an easy way to forget that because we can get the cruises, we can go on the vacations, we can get the spa treatments, we have the indoor plumbing, we've got good health care, we've got 401ks, we've got retirements. It's easy to forget. I think that's why death is so much more tragic to us here in the West because we're so much more, it's so foreign to us. Our money can so easily blind us to the fact that we're dying and we need a parachute. We need Jesus. We're not good enough. Thank Jesus that he is good enough. So the young man leaves and the disciples say, who can be saved? Wealth was seen in that culture as a blessing from God. So here's a rich young man who comes to Jesus' feet. He turns around, he walks away, and Jesus says, how difficult is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And then the disciples' mind, they're like, but God's been blessing him. He's got a position. He's got money. And he's, he's like, he's pretty morally upright, I suppose. If he can't be saved, who can? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this judgment, this, this righteous judgment that's going to be revealed, it says in, in Romans chapter two, this judgment is not for you. Jesus says in John chapter five that there will be a day, there will be an hour when everyone who hears my voice will rise. They'll come out of the graves, those who have done well to a, life of, to, a, to a resurrection of life, those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. And the doing there is belief in him. There will be a future resurrection guaranteed. But if you're a Christian this morning, you won't be there because you've already paid for your sins, you've already been killed for your sins, you've already been judged when Jesus was judged on the cross. John's gospel often has in the, mouths of, in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus is often speaking about how his, his raising up will be his glory. When he's lifted up, he'll be glorified. It's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified and he's referring to the cross and the reason is that he uses that language is because on the cross, the glory of his grace is the most clearly seen. He's holding the Milky Way in his hand. He loves you with that sort of compassion. We are that level of sinful. We are so sinful and yet he comes. He enters into the human existence, as a baby, lives a perfect life, the life that we cannot live. And on the cross we see, A, how seriously we should take our sin. Look at the mutilated body of Christ and that is how serious we should take our sin. But you look at Jesus on the cross and you see the grace of God and it's glorious. Jesus got what we deserved on the cross. And the Bible says that it was his good pleasure For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's the good pleasure of the Father to give you the kingdom. That's his glorious grace. He looks at you like he looked at my dad in the V-dub on the tail end of a drug addiction. He said, come, come. Your sins have been paid for. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. And join join the church in in the long road to heaven. We still got the rest of our lives to go but we're safe. We have eternity. We have treasure in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. This is the gift. This is the gift. Salvation. We don't have to earn it. That pressure is gone. You don't come to Jesus looking for what else you can do. You come to Jesus empty handed and depend on what he's already done. This is how good he is. Praise the Lord. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, You can come to Jesus. He will save you. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter what hurts you have caused or are being caused to you, you can come to Jesus. He will take you. He loves you. He loves you. I'll close with this. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. On the cross of Calvary, we see what we deserved and we see Jesus taking it for us. And we become heirs of Christ, meaning that we get what he gets. We get what he, we get his heaven. We get his place at the table with him forever. Friends, this life is going to be over so fast. Forget about your money. Forget about whatever it is you're putting your faith and your hope in. And it doesn't matter if you're hurt. It doesn't matter if you're addicted. It doesn't matter if you're struggling. Jesus loves you. He'll take you. Put your faith in him. He holds 621 quadrillion miles of galaxy and then some. And all of that power and authority and force is coming straight towards you. And he's saying, come, hug me. Let's spend eternity together. This is how good his grace and compassion is. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for taking the punishment that we deserve. Thank you for giving us the life that you deserve. Help us, Spirit, to live that out here on earth. We pray, Spirit, that you might convict hearts, that you might comfort hearts, that you might lift up where lifting up needs to be had, and that you might humble where humbling needs to be had. And if there's someone here who's, holding on to something like this rich guy's money. It's not the point of giving up money. It's the point of giving up idols. It's the point of putting your trust in the right God, and that is you, Yahweh. So spirit, convict, convert. Thank you for the hope that we have ahead of us. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this body. Thank you for this building. Thank you for all of the sweet things that we get to enjoy here. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus, amen.